Hi, I'm Matthew Kind. Every Monday, look for a fresh new episode where I'll take you behind the scenes and interview the insiders that are shaping the rapidly evolving cannabis industry. Learn more at cannainsider.com. That's C-A-N-N-A insider.com. Now here's your program. Often commercial cannabis growers are tight-lipped about the best practices they use to grow world-class plants that customers want and that bring in profits. Today, commercial grower Ryan Douglas is going to pull back the kimono and share all the secrets you need to take your grow to the next level. Ryan, welcome to Canna Insider. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Give us a sense of geography. Where are you in the world today? I'm in Florida on Vero Beach, so it's about two hours north of Miami. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book, From Seed to Success? Sure. So this is basically a guidebook for anyone from any industry that's interested in launching a commercial uh, cultivation operation. So it's basically set up... uh, as a step-by-step guide for not only planning and designing, but also executing and expanding a successful commercial cannabis grow operation. Okay. So it's not just for someone that's about to launch one. It's also for people that currently have a commercial grow too. Exactly. Exactly. Because there's as many companies looking to expand as there are uh, looking to start from scratch. Yeah, this is important stuff. So I'm, I'm, I want to dig into this, but before we do, can you just give us a little background about your, about how you got into this business, what you were doing prior and so forth? Sure. So my background, uh, my training is actually in traditional horticulture. So um, before even touching cannabis on a commercial scale, I was a greenhouse grower of ornamental and edible crops uh, for about 15 years uh, across the U.S., And then as cannabis slowly became decriminalized, I started looking to transition um, basically the crop I was growing, but kind of keep the same line of work. Uh, So what I found is that, you know, 90% of the the techniques and principles used for cultivating flowers or vegetables or herbs are directly applicable to cannabis. So uh, as cannabis became uh, more and more, uh, at least decriminalized, then I became more interested in entering entering that um, that line of work. And I was lucky enough to land a job as the head grower for a company called Tweed, which is today known as Canopy Growth Corporation in Canada. Yeah. And gosh, that's one of the biggest success stories in the cannabis space now publicly traded. So it's one of the biggest. And we, we had uh, CEO Bruce Linton on when it was called Tweed. So there's a throwback uh, for listeners that want to go back to the those uh, original that was a long time ago. That seemed like that seemed like cannabis 1.0. So I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we're you're going to hear some of the Genesis story here. So most people have heard of Tweed that now became Canopy Growth. But what were you doing when you first started with them? How did you set up a that's an enormous grow, I imagine. What was that like? No, so that was that was exciting. Uh, so uh, Bruce uh, Bruce hired me over uh, a dinner one night in Ottawa back in 2013, and uh, I just never looked back. So that was a really exciting ride. At the time, I was um, a cultivation manager for a small dispensary in Maine. Uh, so I was thrilled to be working with cannabis legally, but compared to the greenhouses I had been operating, it was a relatively small uh, grow area. So almost immediately, I started looking for something that would be much more challenging, but still in the, in the cannabis world. And so I read that Tweed was um, looking for a head grower and I just kind of followed the, the, the typical paths of, uh, of landing a job through, you know, reaching out with a, a resume and, and phone interview. And then I landed the in-person interview with, with Bruce in Ottawa and, and we took it from there. 
But uh, you're right. It was it was a massive undertaking because we were one of the first licensed producers in Canada. I think we were the seventh. So um, we not only had uh, consumers that were that were uh, waiting to purchase product, but we also had Health Canada, which was the entity responsible for regulating the program, and and they wanted to have some licensed producers uh, actively growing and selling cannabis. So so there was never a dull moment for the first couple of years at work there. Okay, Bruce Bruce goes big. He likes to go big. How many, how many plants were you, were you growing? Yeah, so at that time we were we were um, restricted by by the amount of grow rooms that we had licensed. So, in the way that Health Canada set up the program is, you received a cultivation license, which gave you permission permission to cultivate, but you had to have individual grow rooms uh, okayed by Health Canada. So at the time. At the beginning of that program, uh, there were it was a relatively slow process. So our goal initially was to set up six rooms um, of about 2,000 square feet each, and you would stick about 500 plants in each of those rooms. So the 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 kind of the short term immediate goal was to grow you know 3,000 plus plants that we could load up half a dozen grow rooms, and that was that was actually the the foundation of the cultivation program at Canopy. Okay, and. I, eventually, it moved into like a Hershey factory in Ontario or something like that. Did I get that right? Uh, yep. So that's where we started. So okay. when they when they hired me in 2013, the company didn't have a license. So part of my job was to help the group identify a facility that would be appropriate for building out into a, a commercial cultivation facility. So what they found was a, a former Hershey chocolate factory in Smith's Falls, Ontario, which had been empty for seven years. So it was huge. There was plenty of space. There was a lot of um, electrical power, a lot of water, and it was actually the ideal location. And, and because it had sat empty for seven years, uh, the price was right on point. So that's how we ended up there. Okay. And how did you pick the genetics to grow? Well, uh, at the time, uh, uh, the regulations prohibited us from acquiring genetics um, from any source that was not already licensed to grow them. So at that point in Canada, for several several years prior, they had a medicinal cannabis program for home growers. And so with the new program, it basically licensed large commercial growers, but we had to acquire genetics from those um, home cultivators. So it was, so while I was busy kind of designing the facility and hiring the team and, and planning production, uh, we had people that were reaching out to these licensed home growers to see if they'd be interested in selling their genetics and then seeing what they had and in what quantities. And once these folks kind of reported back with their findings, then I was able to select what I thought uh, made sense to, to really launch the cultivation program with. Okay. So are you just getting like c- cuttings from like mother plants then? Is that what was happening? Uh, so we had more luck finding seeds. So okay. the, the risk with starting from cuttings or mother plants is that you you bring in everything that's on that plant. So there's a high likelihood of, of either a disease or an insect coming, kind of hitching a ride with that plant. And since we had just built a brand new custom designed facility for cannabis, we really didn't want to kind of start off with two strikes against us by... Sure inviting in uh, potential problems. So by starting from seed, we eliminate that risk to some extent. Okay. Yeah. So what kind of efficiencies are required for a grow that large? Well, so those six grow rooms, relatively speaking, it wasn't that big, but my, my goal was to 
design a production facility that had the capacity to really expand relatively quickly and relatively seamlessly. So from the get-go, there was a, a couple of systems I put in place that would really increase the efficiency, but also would um, support a much larger expansion. So uh, just quickly, two of those were the environmental control system and a fertigation system. So an environmental control system, what that does, it, it allows uh, either the owners or the head grower to view on one screen, monitor everything that's happening in the production facility and make changes as well. So with the click of a button, you could look at a, a grow room and see uh, how the HVAC equipment, the dehumidification equipment is functioning. You know, if the lights are on, how many lights are on, if the fans are moving, uh, carbon dioxide levels, and it lets you adjust those so you can do that. Um, remotely or on site. And the second piece of equipment was a fertigation system. And fertigation is simply the, the adding of fertilizer to irrigation water. So, um, you know, watering irrigating plants is a task that happens just about every single day in a production facility. And the amount of time it takes to, to fill a tank, measure fertilizer, apply the fertilizer, empty the tank, uh, it seems like a pretty straightforward process, but it can, it can consume, you know, 10% of a person's workday. And you multiply that day after day, week after week for years, and you're spending a lot of money on labor on that one task. So by automating the irrigation, uh, we, we kind of free up the labor and it ensures that um, we have a, a relatively lean production program in the future as they expand as well. Okay. So, uh, and what about harvest cycles then? Do you have a different harvest period for different rooms to make it easier on yourself or how, how does that work? Yeah, so, so really the most efficient way to set up a production facility is to have a perpetual harvest cycle. So whether we're talking about an indoor grow up or a greenhouse, you know, if you were to load up that facility all at once and harvest it all at once, you need a really big space to dry it, a really big space to process it. You need a lot of people all at once to do the trimming. And then once it's done, you don't need that empty space and you have to let all those people go. So it's much more efficient to harvest smaller quantities, but do so regularly. Really just about every two weeks is, is ideal. Okay. And did you use trimming machines or trim by hand or how does that work? Uh, yeah. So we did both. Initially, we started out by hand. Um, but once you get into really big volumes, that really eats into your labor costs. So uh, towards the, the end of my uh, tenure there, we, we automated the trimming. Okay. Yeah. Gosh. And how about, what? can you tell us anything about the drying and curing process? Yeah, so that's, it's a critical step because it's actually possible in, in a week or 10 days to, to ruin all of the, the previous uh, couple months of work if the drying process isn't, isn't done correctly. So it's simply a balance of uh, the correct temperature and the correct humidity and slowly allowing the moisture to leave the plant. So if it's, if it's too hot, and too dry and it's done too quickly, it can negatively affect the, the quality of the flower and it can destroy some of the active ingredients, the cannabinoids or terpenes that the plant has. On the flip side, if it's done too slow or the temperature is too cold and the humidity is too high, um, the crop can easily begin to rot in the drying room. So it's a question of finding the balance between temperature, uh, humidity, and airflow. And generally, uh, a crop should be dried within about seven, maximum 10 days from the day it's harvested. Okay. In your mind, what are the most common preventable problems commercial growers could avoid but don't? So there, there's a couple. Probably the... the the biggest two, I think, are, especially for startups, 
selecting a really complicated grow method. So there's lots of different ways to grow cannabis. Um, but what I find oftentimes are, are groups that are new to the process. They do a lot of reading and investigating, and they find that um, certain ways of growing um, produce the most amount of product, grow the plant the fastest, and have the, the least likelihood of disease or insect infestation, which is great. But there's some really advanced methods of growing which are inappropriate for startups. So if you think in a new facility, uh, you've got a new cultivation team, you likely have new genetics, everything is brand new. And if you start with, you know, the, the most advanced, most difficult method of growing, it has a very low margin for error. And because most startups in any, in any industry are not pretty, um, you really want to kind of uh, eliminate potential risks or things that could go wrong. So, so the, <clears throat> there's methods of growing called uh, deep water culture or aeroponics. And basically the plant is suspended in water or it's suspended in the air and the roots are misted by, by a nutrient solution. But there's so many valves and tubes and pipes and there's so many variables that have to come together just perfect for that crop to get pulled off that um, it's really risky for a startup to go that way. So probably one of the biggest mistakes I see is that uh, companies from the get-go elect a very uh, advanced, inappropriate method of cultivation to start with. And probably the, the second um, mistake I see right behind that is, is selecting too many genetics to start with from the get-go. So I've had clients that have wanted to start between 50 and 100 different varieties from seed to launch their cultivation facility. And that's extremely unlikely. Even a world-class skilled grower is going to have a very difficult time pulling that off. So I tell people to start with maybe five or eight, maximum 10 varieties because if you can't launch a cultivation facility successfully and quickly doing it with five varieties, you'll never do it with 50. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of biting off more than you can chew because you don't know the level of difficulty when you're doing it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of excitement. And especially if you're new to the industry, there's so much technology and information and equipment, everything sounds good. So there's a tendency to want to implement it all at once. So you have just the best, most efficient production facility, but you really, if you're not from the industry, you really need a consultant or a head grower that can really point you in the direction of what's necessary and what is inappropriate at the moment. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a good point. So if you are the business owner or master grower lead grower, what are the things you should be thinking about on a high level when you're creating a commercial grow for the first time? Like how do you organize your thoughts about what needs to be done? Yeah. So from the, from the get go, it's probably a good idea to start at the end with the end product. So we really want to determine what is it that we're going to sell. So um, if we're growing for, uh, if we're growing dried flour for sale at a dispensary, um, that's going to dictate how we grow that crop. So in a dispensary, you know, you walk in and you've got dozens of varieties behind a glass counter. So the visual appeal is very important. It actually makes up a big part of the, the sale process. So if we're growing dried flour for sale in a dispensary, we're likely going to be growing indoors because that gives us the most amount of control over the crop and it results in really the best looking product. But if we're growing for uh, an extracted product, if we're going to sell oils or vape pens or edibles, then the visual appeal of the flower doesn't really matter because the consumer never sees it. We're growing the flower as a source of biomass for
from which we extract the active ingredient. So in that case, actually outdoor growing or greenhouse growing might be appropriate. So we want to start by looking at the end result. And then once we determine what our final product is, then we kind of work backwards from there. Uh, we look at the regulations to see if the regulations dictate that we have to grow in a certain way. Uh, for example, in Canada, when we started in 2013, we were only allowed to grow indoors. But now, you know, eight years later, you've got people growing indoors, outdoors and greenhouse. So we want to look at the regulations. And then probably the last part of that is really look at the climate. So even if you decide that growing outdoors makes sense, if you're in New Hampshire, you've got a really small window of time to make that happen. Whereas if you're in Southern California or Arizona, you could have two or three crops during the course of the year just because the weather is different. So, so even before we look at growing the plants or the technical stuff, we really want to look at kind of the bigger picture things like the end product, if there's any regulatory prohibitions, and then also what makes sense in that certain geography or climate. Just like Zillow lets you browse for properties to buy or rent online, there's a company doing the same thing in the cannabis and hemp space. 420 Property lets you browse cannabis and hemp real estate and even businesses that are for sale. Get started for free at 420property.com. That's the numerals 420property.com. Now back to your program. So, Ryan, how do you orient people in terms of budget? I mean, I know different projects have different budgets, but is there any general guidelines you can you can help listeners with? Yeah, so that's a, a critical piece of the puzzle because what I have found is that if you don't have a budget, then everything is too expensive. And the risk is that, you know, you have a lot of these companies that sell kind of turnkey solutions specifically for the cannabis industry. So, you know, HVAC systems that have the capacity to remove uh, lots of water, which is, is the case with any kind of cultivation site. There's a lot of evaporation, transpiration. Uh, you have companies that offer turnkey solutions in, ter of, in terms of fertigation systems, like I was speaking about before. And so these may be a little bit more expensive up front, but what you, what you get as a result is really uh, low risk and limited downtime. And, and you give yourself the, the greatest likelihood of, of launching your facility on time successfully. So in terms of budget, I mean, if you're doing 10,000 square feet, you really want to have a couple million dollars at your disposal. Um, anything larger than that, then you're looking at raising, you know, upwards of close to $10 million. So if you're, what I tell clients in the beginning phase is if you're going to build something from scratch, um, if you're building an indoor facility, plan on spending about $250 a square foot to build that site out. Uh, if you're doing a greenhouse, uh, plan on about $75 a square foot. But, okay. you know, anyone can do the math on that. And as you approach 10,000 square feet or more, then we're definitely in the several millions of dollars. Okay. And how about hiring? How do you pick staff that can really make an impact? Well, that's another, uh, another key element to really establishing um, a successful cultivation program. So two things. I would say one on the head grower. Uh, the head grower, in my opinion, is arguably the most influential person in determining whether that business is a success or a failure. So I tell people to, um, to look for someone that has at least 10 years of experience, not necessarily with cannabis, but at least with commercial plant production experience because they already come to the table with, you know, years of experience with facility management, production planning and people management. And sometimes if you hire for cannabis knowledge, 
what you get is someone that knows a lot about cannabis, but doesn't necessarily know how to plan production or manage a team or, or orchestrate all of the nuances of a facility. So as far as the head grower, I say, look for someone with experience. You want someone that at least has a decade of experience growing anything, anything, but on a commercial scale. And then for the rest of the team, you, you really don't need someone that has experience in the cannabis industry. So whether they're plant technicians or trimmers, um, you really just want to look for the same kind of characteristics that you would want when you hire anyone for any kind of job. So that's really uh, someone that has a track record of showing up on time, uh, someone that can learn new skills quickly, and probably more importantly, is someone that's really passionate and interested to get into this industry. Okay. And what about, you talked a little bit about pest issues and how uh, pests can get hitch a ride on uh, on cuttings of a mother plant, but how do you mitigate pest issues when they do get in? Because invariably it seems like they do get in. You want to minimize the opportunity, but how do you deal with it once pests are inside a grow? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because that's the best way to look at it. Not, not, um, not to be too naive. We need to anticipate that we're going to have pest and disease problems because every single monoculture um, in the world is attacked by something and eventually it's going to happen. So, so of course, pre- prevention is always less expensive and, and more efficient than curative measures. So we can prevent um, introducing diseased material into our grow-up by either starting from seed or if we do accept uh, cuttings or genetics from another grower, uh, we could put that through a process of, of micro-propagation or tissue culture. So in the process of duplicating plants through tissue culture, you actually eliminate any uh, disease that's inherent in the plant. So it gives you an opportunity to really start fresh or at least establish uh, a stock plant or a production system that's, that's really clean at, at, at the base. Uh, but then during the course of growing, um, it's all about really um, maintaining schedules in terms of Uh, scouting the crop for potential issues, but then also either applying organic-based pest control products or releasing beneficial insects to really uh, keep any potential outbreaks under control and really mitigate the damage that they might cause in the event of a crop failure. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about what actually is happening in the tissue culture process that you mentioned? So unfortunately, I, I can't get too specific because even even I don't understand how that works. Okay. So um, it's 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 much more common in traditional agriculture. There's you know dozens of of um, crops that are are duplicated that way, but um, basically uh, traditional asexual propagation involves the taking of cuttings or clones. So you have a mother plant. You cut off a shoot that's about four or six inches long. You stick it into a substrate, and two weeks later, you've got roots. And now you've got a genetically identical clone to that mother plant. With tissue culture, it's somewhat of the same process, but you need much less plant material. So really just you know, a fraction of a centimeter of material is sufficient in order to start the process of propagating a new cutting. So if, if you look at a, a standard um, mother plant, um, it could probably generate one or 200 cuttings every couple of weeks. But with uh, tissue culture, you could literally generate 10,000 um, cuttings from one plant at the same time. Wow. And you mentioned a little bit about the automation you set up at uh, Tweed or Canopy, Canopy Growth, but 
I'm interested in what kind of technology you think has the most positive impact in terms of making sure the autom- automation is working correctly and managed correctly. Is there any names of products or anything you can throw out there in terms of like the best practices in terms of software or um, automation systems? So th- there's so many out there. Really, the, the most important thing I would I would direct people to look for is any kind of technology that that helps you create the optimal growing conditions for the plant. And so that means really guaranteeing just a few factors, and that is light intensity, uh, temperature, uh, humidity levels, and airflow, carbon dioxide to some extent too. But if we can provide those four or five basic growing needs for the plant and have it right inside of those optimal ranges every single day, whether we're, you know it's the lights on or lights off cycle, then that makes growing a lot easier. And if, if the plant is healthy, there's much less risk of uh, insect or disease infestation. So I would say any technology, any equipment or any software that helps the grower to better control the grow environment is going to be well worth the investment. Okay. Yeah. Gosh. And one that probably sends you text messages or something. So if it happens in the middle of the night, you get alerted, right? Exactly. Exactly. So when we set up Canopy Growth, uh, I was the first call on that list of of phone numbers when when something went out of range. Uh, it would immediately call my my cell phone uh, until I picked up and acknowledged that there was a problem. And then if I couldn't remedy the issue from my computer at home, I'd run over to the production site and really dig into what was going on. Did that does that happen often, or is that kind of a rare thing? Like carbon uh, dioxide level too high that's gone outside of range, or something like that. Uh, yeah, or maybe an HVAC system that is shut off, but the lights are still on, so you can literally see the temperature rising uh, oh. as the minutes go by. So, <laughs> so that's why I lived three minutes away from the production site when I moved to Canada because I knew I would be dedicating a lot of time there. But to answer your question, it is common, especially with new facilities, as you're commissioning the equipment and trying to get all this new stuff to work together. But it's less common once uh, once you get going. And I imagine if you're doing indoor grow, you have to have alternate energy source, like a natural gas backup or something like that, or generator. Exactly, exactly. And you, and so it would be unlikely that, you know, a production plant the size of, of Hershey's, uh, that you would have a generator that could, that would allow every single equipment, piece of equipment to continue running. So you really have to identify what are the most critical elements in a, in a grow operation to, to keep running in the event of a power failure. Okay. A lot, lot of people, it's kind of like uh, the Hatfields and McCoys with lights. People have their, you know, pr- preferences and they kind of get angry at people that have other preferences. But what kind of lights do you like for indoor grows? So for, for indoor, indoor grows with a relatively uh, low ceiling height or those indoor grows that are multi-tier, LED lights work really well because they have a really thin profile and they can get really close to the plant. So if you're growing in a grow room with a low ceiling height, um, you know, the, these plants are typically cultivated on benches that are about two feet tall. The plants grow another three feet, so you're at five feet already. And then if you get a short ceiling height, you, you really, you can't have a light that's going to generate a lot of heat because you're going to burn the tops of your plants and there's nothing that you could do so. Um, so low ceiling height or multi-tier growing, 
um, I think LEDs work really well. If you've got a high ceiling or if you're in a greenhouse environment, then I still like a lot of the HIDs because they're just so powerful. They can really uh, penetrate the crop and they, they have kind of uh, carrying power. So if you're in a really um, uh, high ceiling indoor grow up or really high gutter on a greenhouse, then these HID lights are really going to, uh, they're going to reach the, the plant and do the work that they need to do. Where do you think commercial grows are going and how are they going to involve, evolve in the next three to five years? Well, I, th- I think that we need to anticipate that growers will come under increasing pressure to really minimize their carbon footprint. So on the one hand, it's great that we've got more and more states and countries that are legalizing cannabis cultivation, but we don't want our legacy as an industry to be that we've created this energy consuming hog in a sense. So I think as we look to the next three to five years, we're going to, we should anticipate as responsible growers that we'll need to do more with less, which means that we need to continue producing cannabis, but um, doing so using less electricity and less water. So I think we're going to see a lot of technology that's going to allow indoor growers to do that. But I also think new projects and expansion projects are going to be looking to greenhouse production because it's a much more environmentally friendly way of growing um, cannabis. And if we look at every other um, crop that's grown in the world, we're the only ones that do it indoors. So if they can do it successfully outdoors with something like tomatoes that has such a small uh, uh, profit margin, then we can certainly learn how to do that successfully with cannabis, given that some of these markets are commanding, you know, $4,000 a pound wholesale. Yeah. Okay. And you're, you're seeing a lot more adoption then of the greenhouses in Canada, it sounds like? Well, so th- these are, those are my recommendations. It's, it's hard to say on a whole, if, if new businesses are going more indoors or outdoors, but my recommendation to clients um, more and more is to look at greenhouses because they're less expensive to build, they're less expensive to operate. And in three or four years, in the event that there's some very strict regulations regarding electrical and water consumption, if you've built a really expensive indoor grow up, it's going to be even more expensive to retrofit that thing to comply with the new regulations. So I honestly think greenhouse is the future of, of uh, large scale cannabis cultivation. So for people that are interested in your book and they're on the fence, like, hey, am I going to read this book or am I not? Tell, tell us what, what's the biggest benefits uh, from reading your book? Yeah, so the, the, the kind of person that could benefit the most is someone that is not from the cannabis industry, but recognizes the business opportunity. So what my book is going to help these folks do is really avoid the typical startup mistakes. So they end up spending less uh, and they come to market much more quickly. Okay, makes sense. Let me ask you a few personal development questions here, Ryan. Is there a book that's had a big impact on your life or way of thinking that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, yeah. So for a long time, I always wanted to be an independent consultant. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a book that I read that actually helped show me the way, showed me how to become a, a consultant and how to be the kind of consultant that I needed, I wanted when I was a head grower. Uh, and it's a book called Getting Started in Consulting by Alan Weiss. Okay. And it was, and it worked. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, I can owe a lot of my success to that book. Okay. And what do you think the most interesting thing is going on in your field? So I think that uh, kind of piggybacks a little bit on my previous answer in terms of uh, really lessening our, our carbon footprint. So 
greenhouse and outdoor growers of cannabis, we can't rely on the kind of pest control products that other growers can use like pesticides or, or fungicides. So we've got to get much more creative in growing these commercial crops, but doing it in a very clean organic method. And so what's exciting to me is, is seeing the, the way that growers are using, I would call biological agents. So beneficial bacteria, um, beneficial fungus, uh, beneficial insects um, in a way that prevents their crops from being exposed to potential disease, but also prevents the or mitigates the potential damage from a crop failure. So I'm excited to see in the next few years, uh, more and more companies implementing these products and really replacing uh, pesticides with the use of, of organic methods and products to, to protect their crops. I feel like geothermal is a big opportunity, especially in some of these environments with huge uh, temperature swings, because you can be pulling the earth's temperature into your grow and then the HVAC system just does kind of the final last part instead of the, all the energy. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to take everything to this extreme temperature that we can, the earth's temperature is like at 50, I think once you go down 15 or 20 feet. And so if you can pull that temperature up into the grow, then the HVAC has to consume a lot less electricity is there is there something I'm missing about that, or is it just not widely thought of, or is it difficult to, difficult to implement? No, no, that makes a lot of sense. If you can, if you're in an area where you can take advantage of that principle, then I, I recommend it. I mean, I mentioned before that I'm from the traditional horticulture world, and you know, uh, vegetable growers and ornamental flower growers. Oftentimes, you'll have businesses that build these greenhouses right next to a power plant, or right next to an industry that generates heat as a waste product. And so when you look at places like the northern, uh, northern states of the U.S., a large part of their operational expense is going to go into heating a greenhouse. But if, if you are connected to an industry or facility that generates heat as a waste product, then it dramatically drops your operating expenses kind of in the same way that geothermal heat would. So if you're in an area where you can take advantage of that, I, I absolutely recommend it. Okay. What is one thought you have that most people would disagree with you on? So I get a lot of pushback when I tell uh, groups that their head grower should be the highest paid person in the company. So uh, like I said before, I think he or she has the, the greatest influence on determining whether that cultivation business is a success or a failure because the business makes money from growing plants. And if your head grower is, is not a professional, skilled, experienced person, then um, it's you're raising 10 or $20 million to bet on something that's very unlikely to pay off in the end. So I, I, I always tell uh, clients to, to find the best grower that they can afford and, you know, anticipate paying six figures and up for the, for the right person. Okay. That makes sense. Ryan, as we close, tell us again, the name of your book and how to purchase it. Sure. So the book is called From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. And both the paperback and the Kindle version are available on Amazon. Great stuff. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. This has been really helpful and informative. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there that are looking for ways to improve their grows and also how to create an effective grow out of the gate. Do you also do, uh, you mentioned you do consulting. Are you still doing that? Absolutely. So uh, anyone is welcome to reach out to me through my website at douglascultivation.com. 
I have a number of free resources for people that are thinking of getting into the business, but they're also welcome to contact me directly. And I'd be more than happy to speak with anyone about their uh, cannabis project. All right. Well, thanks again, Ryan, and all the best to you in 2021. Thank you, Matt. It's been my pleasure. If you enjoyed the show today, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you might be using to listen to the show. Every five-star review helps us to bring the best guests to you. Learn more at cannainsider.com forward slash iTunes. What are the five disruptive trends that will impact the cannabis industry in the next five years? Find out with your free report at cannainsider.com forward slash trends. Have a suggestion for an awesome guest on Canna Insider? Simply send us an email at feedback at cannainsider.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Canna Insider or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments. Promotional consideration may be provided by select guests, advertisers, or companies featured in Canna Insider. Lastly, the host or guests on Canna Insider may or may not invest in the companies or entrepreneurs profiled on the show. Please consult your licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Final disclosure to see if you're still paying attention. This little whistle jingle you're listening to will get stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Thanks for listening and look for another Canna Insider episode soon. Take care. Bye-bye.